Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. I am your host, Judd Pierce. My law firm is Pierce Pierce in Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And today I'm pleased to have on as a guest, Norman Cole. Mr. Cole is an attorney in Portland, Oregon for the firm of Brownstein and Rask. And for almost 40 years has the experience of representing Longshore Harbor Workers' Compensation Act cases. It's a federal act. And I know we talk a lot about state workers' comp cases here in this program. I thought it'd be a good opportunity to take in an expert in the field of Longshore Act cases. And uh, Mr. Cole certainly has many years of experience as a fellow in the College of Workers' Compensation Attorneys and as an avid and active uh, workers' injury law and advocacy group member. He's spoken on several uh, CLE programs, uh, not only in Oregon, but also in California. Norm, pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you for inviting me. So, as I said, you specialize in representing workers now, subject to the Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act. Could you tell us briefly who is covered by that act? Well, the Longshore Act is a federal compensation act that covers uh, certain categories of workers injured at certain locations. The workers who are covered are those who load, unload, build, repair, or dismantle ships, or the people who do work that's integral to those functions, like the person who repairs the machinery that's needed to, to load something. Uh, but they have to be injured on navigable waters uh, of the United States or on certain designated areas like piers, wharfs, docks, and a certain adjoining areas that are used for those core functions. How does this act differ from, say, state workers' compensation acts? Well, first, let's look at the common elements that this act has with just about every other workers' compensation claim. And that is that uh, the claimant doesn't have to prove uh, negligence to establish entitlement to contribute to uh, compensation. There's no contributory negligence defense. But the flip side of that is that the workers receive a sort of a defined benefit of temporary disability, permanent disability and payment of medical expenses, but not pain and suffering, as you see in civil cases. So that's the common element. And then every state determines who's eligible and the extent to which the employers or carriers must pay for those common disability and medical services benefits. And that that um, differs widely from state to, to state. The Longshore Act is a generous act in terms of uh, allowing people in the door and then giving them benefits once they're there. Uh, there's a very low threshold to prove compensability. Just about any amount of contribution is, is sufficient. In my state, for example, Oregon, uh, workers in a number of types of claims have to prove that their injury is the major contributing cause, the more than 50% cause of an injury. That uh, standard doesn't apply in long-short claims. It's just about any amount of contribution. Also, there's a rebuttable presumption that an injury is compensable if the claimant produces evidence of harm that could have been caused by the work injury. Another element that makes it easier to get into the door There's a rebuttable presumption that a worker is permanently and totally disabled if that worker can't return to usual and customary employment after the injury. So you start off saying permanent total disability, and then maybe you go down from there if they can't go back to their regular work. 
The average weekly wage for the worker, which is the basis for payment of just about all types of compensation, is based on earning capacity at the injury, not just the wage at the time of the injury. And there's a pretty generous maximum compensation level. As of last October 1, 2022, it was $1,833.98 a week. That's the maximum that could be awarded at temporary disability in any one week, uh, generally. And then it awards permanent disability is either scheduled or unscheduled, scheduled the extremities, loss of hearing, loss of vision, based on a percentage of the maximum number of weeks uh, that may be allowed for that loss. So say you have an injury to the arm. If you had 100% loss of the arm, you get your compensation rate paid for 312 weeks. If it's 25%, then you get that compensation rate for 78 weeks. If you have a generous compensation rate, then you're getting a pretty generous award for your scheduled loss. If you have any other kind of loss, it's called unscheduled, and that's measured by two-thirds of the difference between your average weekly wage and your post-injury earning capacity. And that's payable as a lifetime benefit, unless there's a change of condition or a mistake in fact, and it can be changed up or down later on. So that can uh, count up to quite a bit of money and six figures awards and settlements in long-short claims are pretty common. The other element that is, I don't know if it's unique to the Longshore Act, but it's a pretty important element is that attorneys who represent workers don't receive a percent of the claimant's recovery. They get paid if successful with some limitations under the act if they succeed in obtaining additional compensation for the claimant and they get paid by the employer and carrier and not by the claimant. That's a big difference for the for the claimants. Also they get reimbursed for their costs if if successful. Now can the employer restrict a claimant's choice of attending physician? Well, the claimant has the initial right to select an attending physician. After that, there may be some limitations on changing physicians. But unlike some acts, uh, like in Oregon, for example, the employer can't require the claimant to select a physician from a group, from a managed care organization, when making that first choice or even choices thereafter. It's only after that first choice of physician is made that the claimant must seek the approval of the employer carrier or the district director of the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. That's the sort of the Department of Labor Administrator or sometimes an ALJ, Administrative Law Judge, to, uh, to change physicians. Why should the district director or ALJ order a change of physician? Well, if the... Initial choice was not of a specialist whose services were necessary or appropriate for care and treatment of the injury or the disease, then um, there can be a change of physician. You wouldn't want to have your, um, your low back injury evaluated and treated by a pediatrician, for example. So there are some limits there. If the claimant has good cause to change physicians, it can be allowed. Good cause is a pretty nebulous term in a way. It's whatever seems the trier seems to think is an appropriate uh, reason to do it. The employer can request a change of physician when desirable or necessary in the interest of the employee or where those charges exceed those prevailing within the community of the same or similar services or exceed the provider's customary charges. In other words, if they think they're getting gouged by some provider and it's inappropriate for the 
claimant to be treating with that person. That's pretty rare. That doesn't happen very often when the the employer requests a change of physician. It's usually the claimant who who wants to get a different doctor. Why would the claimant have good cause to change? Um, some reasons are pretty obvious. Sometimes it's uh, the claimant saying that the initial choice was not voluntary. They were directed by the employer to go down to the local clinic and see the doctor there. And they maybe didn't know that they had a choice or that they could go somewhere else. Sometimes their attending physician retires. So the physician is gone. They got to get a new doctor somewhere. Sometimes the claimant moves to another city and it's too far to commute. So they'd have to find a new doctor. And sometimes, but not always, there can be these disagreements between the claimant and the attending physician such that the claimant just no longer has trust or wants to treat with that physician. And these kind of disputes tend to be uh, claimants saying, I don't trust the doctor, I don't like the doctor, he's not treating me. And the employer says, oh, you're just doctor shopping, that doctor released you to go back to work, you don't like the news, so you want to find another doctor who will release you. It's those sort of disputes. Mm-hmm. All right, why don't we take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with attorney Norman Cole. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back with attorney Norm Cole from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Before the break, you said sometimes an ALJ can order a change of physicians. Uh, Why an ALJ and not the district director? Section 7 of the statute says that the secretary, which essentially means the district director of the OWCP, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, has authority that includes the active supervision of medical care rendered to an injured, rendered to injured employees. But then that act was amended in 1972 to transfer hearing authority previously held by the deputy commissioner to the administrative law judges. Well, let me put that a little, in a little context here. In a number of jurisdictions and states, uh, you have a state agency that has authority to regulate uh, insurance programs like workers' compensation and also adjudicate the claims in it. And so there are judges and there are administrators. And that was kind of the situation that occurred originally when the act was uh, allowed by the Congress. And then 1972, there was this transfer of certain authority to judges. So now you have judges and you have district directors, administrators, and you have judges, but the administrators still had certain authority. So there was a question of who has authority to do what? Uh, This was eventually interpreted to mean that the judges have jurisdiction when there's a question of fact, and the district director has jurisdiction when the decision is purely discretionary uh, based on agreed facts. So let's say the claimant was treating with a doctor in Boston, but then moved to Portland and These facts were uncontested. So the claimant wants to change physicians to another doctor in Oregon. If that's the only issue, then that's something the district director could decide because there clearly would be good cause to find a new doctor if the only reason you want a new doctor is because you moved. But 
uh, let's say the claimant wanted a new doctor because uh, he or she was dissatisfied with the treatment or the services provided, and the employer says the doctor's qualified, claimant's just doctor shopping, just wants to get more time loss. Well, that would require a good uh, finding of good cause, and that's a question of fact. And so the administrative law judge would have to resolve that dispute. Who qualifies as an intending physician under the act? Uh, there's an administrative rule that defines physician as including doctors of medicine, that's like an MD, surgeons, podiatrists, dentists, clinical psychologists, optometrists, chiropractors, and osteopathic practitioners within the scope of their practice as defined by state law. Simple enough. It then says naturopaths, faith healers, and other practitioners of the healing arts, which are not listed, are not included within the term physician in this part. Well, that would seem to sort of take care of the issue about who's a physician and who's not, and who's not within the act. But in a 2017 decision from the Benefits Review Board, that's the first level of a pellet body, it held that an audiologist, somebody with an AUD degree, qualifies as as an attending physician because of amendments to the act that were made in 1984. So superseded the rule on who could be an attending physician. Chiropractors are covered uh, under another rule to the extent that their services are limited to manipulation of the spine to correct a subluxation shown by x-ray or clinical manipulation. So that would mean if you took this provision literally, that modalities like ultrasound, heat, massage are not covered under this rule. And unless these modalities perhaps are necessary to make the manipulation effective. There have been several cases that have held that uh, although those other modalities are not covered under the rule, they would be covered if they uh, are a necessary uh, element to make the covered manipulation effective. So in in our state comp, cases, we generally have a lot of different treatment modalities to help injured workers and their pain, uh, such as acupuncture, massage. You're saying that those wouldn't be considered covered medicals? No, the question was who qualifies as a physician. Mm. So a physician has certain authority to refer the claimant to other specialists and uh, is looked upon as kind of a primary uh, treater or care provider for it. But a an attending physician or a physician who is treating the claimant uh, can refer the claimant to a physical therapist or an acupuncturist or some other specialist for treatment. And then that other person can treat in under the supervision and effect of the, uh, of the attending physician or the qualified physician. What about rates for these uh, medical providers? Is there a governing rate body or are they akin to Medicare rates? How do, how do the providers get paid? The Office of Workers' Compensation Programs publishes a um, sort of a fee scale. I, I don't know how to call it. Uh, sort of a maximum rate that could be charged. It's based on the reasonable necessary charges in the community. I don't know exactly how they come up with their, their list of, of what's available and what's not. There have been some cases when uh, physicians have contested the fee that they were given. And generally what happens in those uh, disputes is that the fee they eventually are allowed to receive is the fee in the OWCP schedule. It's comparable generally, I think, to um, something maybe 
a little better than Medicare, but not as much as the doctors always want. And so they take it and there's really relatively few fee disputes that get into litigation. Interesting. And so I have to ask you the question that that's almost on every program these days, but the covering of the cost of medical marijuana and how does the LHWCA uh, see that? Well, it's not covered. There was a 2022 decision that specific from the Benefits Review Board that specifically held that a claimant was not entitled to reimbursement for the cost of medical marijuana prescribed by his physician. It was in Puerto Rico in a state where medical marijuana was, was legal. And the reason is that the Controlled Substance Act, still class, which is a federal act, still declassifies marijuana as a Schedule I controlled substance, which under federal law has no currently accepted medical use or treatment in the United States. So until that act is amended in some way to give marijuana some um, medicinal value, this is a federal act, and so therefore there's no coverage for it. Well, thank you. And uh, we've reached a point in the program for another break. For a word from our sponsors, we will be right back with attorney Norm Cole. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use, all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E dot com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And we're back. Before the break, we were talking about what the LHWCA covers and does for injured workers. Wondering about the unconventional medical expenses, such as home remodeling, specially equipped care vans to accommodate disabilities. Can you tell us a little bit about those types of uh, services? Yeah, they're, they're covered. Home modifications, special transportation devices that are necessitated by the injury, they're a compensable medical service. Well, that does not preclude, however, disputes about the extent of the service that would be provided. Like, for example, um, what type of van uh, should be provided? There's a 2019 decision, for example, where the employer paid, and this is with home modifications, paid $36,000 to modify the claimant's home. We're typically talking about somebody who needs wheelchair access or special modifications in a bathroom, that sort of thing. So, Employer, after paying $36,000 to modify a home, is faced with a situation where the claimant has moved to a different home and now wants to modify the next home. And there are estimates from the claimant's experts that this would cost $124,000 to $165,000. 
And the employer says, oh, no, no, you can do all this for $44,000. So it gets to a judge. There's a question of fact. The uh, judge gives more weight to the employer's uh, plan, but remands to the district director to determine the character and sufficiency of the employer's uh, plan and gives the employer a credit for the prior modifications. On appeal, the Benefits Review Board says, no, you don't get a credit, you just have to do it. But it is correct for the district director to evaluate the, the details uh, within that uh, estimated $44,000 plan. Is the Benefits Review Board a single member or is it a panel? It's a panel of several appellate judges, three of them, I think. And they um, hear cases based on a standard of whether there is uh, substantial evidence to support findings of fact or errors of law. Generally takes about a year or so from the time that briefs are completed. At least they try to do it within a year, sometimes longer, of course, to issue their decisions. And then after that, the appeal may go to the uh, Court of Appeals in the appropriate district. And after that, rarely to the Supreme Court. Have you had experiences in the appeals sort of latter up to or including the Supreme Court? Never made it to the Supreme Court, but I've had a, a decent share of uh, Court of Appeals cases. Mm-hmm. Mostly, not, well, all in the Ninth Circuit, because that's my that's my jurisdiction. Yeah. Do people call you from around the country knowing that you practice in this area? Technically, you could represent someone in Portland, Maine, as, in addition to Portland, Oregon, right? Yes, I could uh, represent anybody in the country at, in any trial level because I'm admitted to practice in a federal district court. If I wanted to practice in a court of appeals, I'd have to be admitted to the specific court in that jurisdiction. I'm admitted in the Ninth Circuit, but I haven't sought admission in other courts of appeals, but could could get it. But I do have people who contact me now and then and ask me to do a little appellate work or some other kind of kind of work. Mostly the that comes from um, California area attorneys, because that's a big part of the Ninth Circuit. But I answer questions on the Worker Injury and Law Group uh, website from a variety of people all across the country who have questions of law. I try to make a contribution, correct or not, but still doing it. Back to care of injured workers. What about attendant care? People like um, home health aides, people who help uh, the patients in and out of wheelchairs and beds. Is that type of attendant care covered? Oh, yes, that's covered too. In fact, there was a... Um, a, a case that went to the Ninth Circuit in 2006, the doctor wanted the claimant to have 24-hour care, and the employer didn't want to do that, didn't want to at least spend that much, and certainly didn't want to have a wife or a spouse um, providing some of that care and be paid for it. But the Ninth Circuit uh, held that uh, medical care can include attendant and domestic services up to and including 24-hour care if there is evidence to support those services. Now, there could be a dispute about how much to pay the attendant. That's a dispute that might have to be decided by a district director or an AOJ, depending on the circumstances. And there are limits. Um, You can't be reimbursed for the cost of um, hiring a gardener when the injury prevents the claimant from doing it, because I doubt that would be a medical services. But at least in, in my circuit, when we go back to the, um, the question of uh, what type of service should be provided, medical, whether it's attendant care or any other kind of medical service, there is great deference to the treating physician. The court in a 1998 decision called Amos 
said that when the injured employee is faced with competing medical opinions about the best way to treat a work-related injury, when each choice is reasonably or medically reasonable, it's for the worker and not the employer or the judge to decide what's best for the worker. When there are disputes, how long will it take before a claimant gets his or her decision? Uh, In other words, in state Comp here in Massachusetts, we have a temporary conference proceeding, which is designed to give a quick order of, of payment if the judge finds that way. And then the appeal can take another six months for a hearing de novo. Do you have a sort of temporary step where the claimant can get see quicker compensation than, than a year or more? Unfortunately, the Longshore Act does not really provide a quick route to um, a formal decision, at least in my circuit, maybe in um, some other areas, uh, it may go a little bit faster, but it can take months or years to secure an order uh, easily. It can be difficult to determine if this is a dispute that the district director should resolve or an ALJ should resolve. Uh, To get to an ALJ hearing, it's a process to get to that level. That could take a year or more just to get to a judge. Then once you're at the Office of Administrative Law Judges level, uh, where you are in line to get a hearing, it may take many months just to get a hearing date. And then when you get a hearing date, it's maybe four months away from that notice. And then you have your hearing. And then it's not uncommon for judges to take a year or more to issue a decision. I'm waiting three years now for a, for a decision on one case that I had. And have a number of others that are still waiting out there, and it's been more than a year. Um, Judges are, um, you know, too few judges and uh, not enough help, and they just take them as fast as they can, but it takes time. Unfortunately, that's a drawback of the system. I should say that I've heard that cases can be decided a little bit faster in some other jurisdictions. There's six Office of Administrative Law Judges in in the country, The one I work out of is San Francisco, but there's Boston, Cherry Hill, Covington, Newport News, and District of Columbia, too. And maybe in some of those other areas, it goes a little bit faster, but it's a slow process compared to a lot of state systems, which require a decision in, you know, in 60 or 90 days after you get there. That doesn't happen in the Longshore Act. So is anything being done virtually or do claimants uh, have to travel if they live far away from uh, their closest office? Before COVID, we did everything in person unless we made a special application and demonstrated kind of a good reason to have a witness testify by video or some other method. But when COVID came in, the uh, Office of Administrative Law Judges uh, started adopting methods to have a hearing virtually with uh, video conferences, and it became kind of a normal thing that, and at least my experience is, it's a pretty good way of doing it. In my office, for example, we, we can have the claimant and our witnesses in our conference room, and we can set up a large screen television to see what the other side, what's happening on the other side, and we set up a camera so that the other side can see all of us in the conference room, and it's worked pretty well. Now, with uh, COVID coming more under control, the judges uh, seem more willing to have in-person hearings or video hearings without this extra request to justify the video hearing. I think the judges like video hearings. It certainly caused less expense from the Department of Labor's point of view uh, than sending a judge to another city and to hang out in a hotel for, for a week. So 
I think they're here to stay. It's a good thing from my standpoint. I still have some, I have a client, for example, who, who is moving to uh, California or, excuse me, moving to Idaho. Mm-hmm. And his hearing will come up sometime. And instead of requiring him to come back from Idaho, we can do this hearing while he's still there. Uh, that's very convenient. Now, the Defense Base Act people um, have some different issues in uh, in hearings. And you should find somebody who is a specialist in those kind of claims to deal with their unique um, issues. But for the typical Longshore and Harbor Workers claims, I think video conference, conferencing has worked very well. It's also worked for depositions so that we don't have to kind of go out to the doctor's office and uh, sit there and take notes on some small little table as we're asking the questions. That's that's worked out well. Well, we're approaching the end of our program. Just wanted to thank you uh, very much for your time today and giving our listeners uh, a look into the life of the LHWCA. It's an area that isn't, you know, covered a whole lot. And um, you seem to be uh, fairly happy in it. I mean, you started out as a district attorney way back when, and now you're doing this type of work. Do you enjoy doing it? Oh, yeah, I, very much. I Actually, I started off after the DA's district, deputy district attorney um, period um, working as a defense attorney, first for a uh, kind of a state-run state provider of workers' compensation for 25 years and then in private practice for 13 years. And then after that, uh, last three and a half years or so, I've been representing injured workers instead. I find that a little more satisfactory than the than the defense work, which I did for so many years. Mm-hmm. But in the course of that, I started doing longshore work in about 1982 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really all I've known is workers' compensation, either under Oregon or the Longshore Act for all those years. And uh, too late to change anything else. And fortunately, I like it. That's great. Uh, well, again, thank you so much, Norman, for, for coming on and joining us on Workers' Comp Matters. And until next time, listeners, this is Judd Pierce from Salem, Massachusetts. Remember, make it a day that matters. Have a good one. <laughs>